I'm John, and this is G-O-L-W-2, episode 47, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 128 to 141, and if there's time after that, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. With the final sentencing of Arthur Newton, the Cleveland Street scandal was, for all practical purposes, brought to a close. <clears throat> the royal family and Prime Minister Salisbury's conservative government could breathe easier now. They had both been saved from a much more serious scandal, one that connected Prince Albert Victor to the Cleveland Street brothel. A royal dilemma, Prince Eddie. It is highly unlikely that either the royal family or Prime Minister Salisbury or any other highly placed government officials would have felt the necessity of interfering in the judicial processes connected with the Cleveland Street scandal were it not for the persistent rumors circulating in London's fashionable clubs and soirees implicating Prince Eddie in the sordid affair. Providentially, during the seven crucial months from late October 1889 to late May 1890, when these rumors were at their zenith, His Royal Highness was out of the country on a pre-planned royal tour of India. This had left the royals and Whitehall room to maneuver. As things stood, there were only two principal players in the Cleveland Street affair who had privately made the connection that linked the prince to Hammond's establishment. They were Lord Somerset's solicitor, Arthur Newton, and Lord Somerset himself. When the scandal first broke during the summer of 1889, it was Newton who had warned the Office of Public Prosecutions and ultimately Whitehall and the royal family of the prince's alleged involvement in the affair. And it was Lord Somerset who had confided to his intimates and close family members that he was sacrificing himself with his self-composed exile in order to protect Prince Eddie. In Prince Eddie and the Homosexual Underworld, the English historical biographer Theo Aronson examined the evidence of the prince's alleged involvement in London's thriving homosexual underworld in general and the Cleveland Street affair and the Jack the Ripper murders in particular. In the case of the famous Whitechapel murders, the evidence was in the prince's favor. He was clearly not Jack the Ripper unless he possessed the power of bilocation. As for the charge that he was a homosexual, though not exclusively so, and that he frequented homosexual haunts like the Hammond brothel, the evidence is inconclusive, although weighed somewhat in the affirmative. From a modern-day psychosexual perspective, Prince Eddie appeared to have possessed certain personal traits from his youth that have frequently been linked to homoerotic tendencies, including a delicate physical constitution that exempted him from rough and tumble boys' play and adolescent sports, an extremely intimate relationship with his mother, Princess Alexander of Denmark, and a somewhat distant, though certainly not hostile, relationship with his father, Albert Edward, Prince of Wales. A handsome and amiable young man of slight but well-proportioned built and mild temperament, collars and cuffs, as he was affectionately known, had a reputation for dandyism that might have been overlooked had he possessed a modicum of intellectual acuity or physical prowess, which unfortunately he did not. Although his family, including his doting grandmother, Queen Victoria, took all the proper precautions to protect Prince Eddie's physical and moral welfare once he entered adolescence. It would have been impossible to shield him completely from the Victorian underworld of vices, including sodomy. Whether on board the naval training ship Britannia or in the hallowed halls of Trinity College, Cambridge, where the gospel of Hellenistic love and the higher sodomy was both preached, was both preached and put into practice, Prince Eddie would have been exposed to the unmentionable vice. By the time the Cleveland Street scandal broke, 
the 25-year-old Prince Albert Victor had already acquired an unfortunate familial and public reputation for sexual dissolution and vice. The exact nature of his dissipation, however, remains vague. Most certainly, he was not the womanizer his father or younger brother, Prince George, were, but this did not mean he eschewed female charms altogether. He had a number of female confidants and was reported to have formed a few romantic attachments. He was engaged to be married before his untimely death in, on January 14, 1892. The minimal attraction to the opposite sex, however, does not militate against the possibility that Prince Eddie might have been drawn into a homosexual liaison with one or more of the young predatory sodomites that were part of his intimate circle of friends at Cambridge. There was also an open secret that Queen Victoria's court was strewn with aristocratic sodomites, any of whom would have been more than willing to introduce the young prince to London's lively homosexual underworld. Perhaps the most convincing argument in favor of Prince Eddie's alleged association with the Cleveland Street brothel was the lengths to which the royal family and Whitehall went to ensure that any connection between the heir apparent and Hammond's establishment never be raised in a court of law. Lord Somerset and Lord Euston were a small fish in a big pond. The only thing that really mattered was that the name of Prince Eddie, the successor to the British throne, not be tainted in any association with the vice of sodomy. Whatever it took to achieve this end, perjury, judicial bribes, witness tampering, the obstruction of justice was deemed acceptable. It is always interesting to note that when the establishment rallies, it almost always rallies around the aggrieved offenders. From the very beginning of the Cleveland Street scandal, private and public attention, if not sympathies, appeared to be drawn to the alleged note violators of the Lubashire Amendment. Poor Somerset, poor Lord Euston, poor Prince Eddie. The record does not tell us what happened to allies and the rest of the young telegraph boys who were seduced and sexually exploited by men many years their senior and who lost their jobs and were publicly disgraced? Other than their intimate families and sweethearts and perhaps the sympathetic PC Hanks and Inspector Abilene, to no one seemed to care about their future. How terribly familiar. Substitute the Roman Catholic Church for the royal family, and one can see how tempting it is for any establishment, secular or religious, to go to extreme lengths to cover up sex scandals, especially those of a pederastic or homosexual nature. As the Cleveland Street affair drew to a close, the overall final verdict in the case, especially in the eyes of radical critics like Lubachere and Park, was that the establishment had won out. But that victory was an illusory one. No sooner had Victorian society begun to enjoy a respite from further unpleasant revelations about the Semitical affairs, sodomitical affairs of this or that earl or prince, when another series of public trials, even more devastating than the Cleveland Street scandal, broke onto the London scene. The many trials of Oscar Wilde, Contrary to popular belief, the trials of Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Willis Wilde did not begin with the persecution of the eminent Irish-born playwright and well-known homosexual playboy of the Victorian world, but with Wilde's prosecution of his nemesis, the Marquis of Queensbury, the father of his young lover and companion in crime, Lord Alfred Douglas. Indeed, it is quite clear that while the middle classes were pushing for a stricter enforcement of anti-sodomy legislation, the Victorian upper classes and high government officials who controlled police enforcement were more than happy to ignore the criminal sexual exploits of Wilde and Douglas, as they did those of other prominent homosexuals of the day. Had not Wilde himself opened the legal door to his own conviction by initiating a civil suit for libel against Queensbury. 
Unfortunately for Wilde, it was not Queensberry who was convicted. Wilde went to prison, not for libel, but for multiple charges of gross indecencies. He was sentenced to two years imprisonment with hard labor, first at Pentonville Prison, then Wandsworth Prison, and finally Reading Jail. His last prison transfer on November 21, 1895, was one of Wilde's most humiliating and traumatic experiences of his life. Dressed in prison clothes, his hands cuffed, the betraggled Wilde stood at the Clapham Rail Junction awaiting public transport. He was flanked by police officers who were forced to shield the prisoner from the angry cursing mob and protect him from the projectiles of spittle and brickbat. It was a terrible scene made all the more tragic by the undeniable fact that the prisoner had brought the sentence down on his own head with a little help from his friends. A promising lad, born in Dublin on October 16, 1854, into a prominent if somewhat eccentric and unconventional family, Oscar Wilde was the second and youngest son of Dr. Later Sir William Robert Wilde, a gifted surgeon, renowned antiquarian, prolific writer, and ladies' man, and Lady Jane Francesca L.G. Wilde, a fierce Irish patriot and talented poetess and linguist in her own right. According to the distinguished scholar and critic Richard Elman, author of Oscar Wilde, considered to be the standard biography on Wilde, the playwright appeared to have enjoyed a carefree, near-idyllic childhood. There was his older brother, William Charles, called Willie, his baby sister, Isola, the pet of the family, until her untimely death at the age of 10, and a large household of agreeable servants, governesses, and private tutors. As he was growing up, young Oscar was oblivious to the darker events and familial scandals that were taking place around him. At the age of 10, the intellectually precocious Oscar, along with Willie, age 11, was sent off to the Portora Royal School in Enniskillen County, Fermanagh in Northern Ireland, where Oscar was to spend the next seven years of his life. Unlike his brother Willie, Oscar was not popular with his classmates, and he remained somewhat of a bookish loner with an inordinate passion for the Greek classics. This passion paid off when, in 1871, the promising classicist was awarded a Royal School Scholarship and later a Foundation Scholarship to Trinity College, Dublin, the Protestant University of Ireland. During his Trinity years, Wilde was hardly influenced by the pre-Raphaelism and Hellenistic movements, as expounded by some of the leading Irish classicists of the day, including the Reverend, later Sir John Pentland Mahaffey, 1839-1919, and the Latin and Greek literary scholar Robert Yelverton Tyrrell, 1844-1914. It was at Trinity College that the young Wilde gave his intellectual, if not emotional, assent to the philosophical foundation that would pave the way to his later homoerotic adventures that served as a bridge between aestheticism and decadence. The colorful and eccentric Mahaffey, Swiss-born but Dublin-educated, was a full-fledged philohene, a lover of all things Greek. Before he became provost of Trinity College in 1904, he would often accompany Trinity undergraduates on school vacation tours of Greece and Italy. Wilde joined him on tour in Italy the summer of his graduation from Trinity. Their mutual interest in Greek history, art, and literature developed into a long-time friendship that continued even after Wilde had matriculated to Magdalen College, Oxford, England. In in 1877, Mahaffey was able to divert Wilde to a tour of Greece, after which Mahaffey was able to brag in a letter to his wife that he had saved Oscar from the Scarlet Woman, i.e. Rome, and redirected Wilde from popery to paganism. It must have been a bitter moment for Mahaffey when Wilde's downfall came. After this, when 
asked about his protege, Mahaffey was reported to have sadly replied, we no longer speak of Mr. Oscar Wilde. Another of Wilde's influential mentors who tutored Wilde in classics was the brilliant Robert Kirill, who held a number of professorships at Trinity, including that of Latin, Greek, and ancient history. He was best known for his commentaries on the correspondence of Cicero and his critical text of Sophocles, and best remembered for his support for Wilde after the 1896 trial, 1895 trials. Wilde's flirtation with the Scarlet Woman, Revelation 17.3. For most of his life, Wilde had an on-again, off-again romance with the Roman Catholic Church that may possibly have predated his Trinity years. His first and official baptism took place at St. Mark's Church, Anglican, when he was seven months of age. The service was conducted by Oscar's uncle, his father's oldest brother, Reverend Ralph Wilde. His second baptism took place privately when Oscar was about nine or ten years old. Jane Wilde had formed a friendship with a Catholic priest, Reverend I.C. Prudeau Fox, himself a convert, who was serving as chaplain for the Glencree Reformatory near the Wilde's summer home in the Wicklow Mountains. At their mother's request, both Oscar and Willie received instructions in the faith and were later rebaptized. Dr. Wilde, a member of the Church of England Protestant who had two brothers in orders, was naturally not pleased with the, with the affair, but he let the matter pass. The private baptism was not registered and Father Fox was soon transferred to another post, never to be seen again by the Wilde family. Dr. Wilde's opposition to the Catholic Church remained strong throughout his life. As for Oscar's, Oscar Wilde's third and final baptism, at the time of his death, a Catholic priest administered the last rites of the Church that included a conditional baptism, the forgiveness of sins, and the final sacrament of extreme unction. During his four years at Trinity, much to his father's chagrin, or perhaps because of it, the young Wilde considered conversion to Catholicism. He had a number of close Catholic friends, including a few Dublin priests, mostly Jesuits, and was an admirer of the prose of Cardinal John Henry Newman, who had come to Dublin to serve as rector of Catholic University in 1854, the year of Wilde's birth. Later, Wilde visited Newman at Birmingham. However, at the time of his graduation from Trinity in 1874, Wilde's interest in the Catholic Church had, for the time being, declined in lieu of more pressing worldly pursuits and ambitions. Also, by the time Wilde left Trinity College for Oxford, the seeds of his ambiguous sexuality reflected in his dandified mannerisms and dress and his acquired spirit of rebellion against bourgeois morality had been planted. However, at this early stage of Wilde's academic career, they had not as yet manifested themselves so as to interfere with his studies. He remained an excellent student. As an undergraduate, Wilde took a first class in classical moderations and a first class in literae humanores, and in his senior year he captured a Berkeley gold medal for Greek and a demiship in the, to Magdalen College, Oxford. Many wealthy Irish families sent their young men to Oxford or Cambridge, Oxford, to complete their education in the fullest sense. For Oscar, his presence at Oxford signaled a major turning point in his life, the Oxford years, 1874 to 1878. It might surprise readers to know that for the first year or so at Magdalen College, Oxford, Wilde, just entering his 20s, led the life of a fairly conventional Oxford undergraduate with no particular time or no particular fame or notoriety. His letters to his family and friends at home in Ireland during this period are filled with familiar rem reminiscences and lovely candor, with and lively candor, good humor, and a healthy dose of leg pulling, 
on a wide variety of subjects. His studies, his new friendships, especially with Reginald Kitten Harding and William Bouncer Ward, his thoughts on religion, his new female acquaintances, and his sporting activities, most especially shooting, golf, swimming, and fishing. As for Wilde's sexual extracurricular activities at Oxford, we know they existed because the young man suffered a case of syphilis and was treated with mercury while a student at Oxford. Whether or not his illicit affairs were with female or male prostitutes or both, we do not know. As for sheer academic controversy and excitement, Wilde had come up to Oxford at just the right time. The university was about to break into open warfare as the proponents of the Hellenistic tradition as espoused by men like Walter Horatio Patter, Benjamin Jowett, and John Addington Simmons came to open blows with the adherents of Protestant traditionalists. The indirect influence of Jowett and Simmons on Wilde will be discussed later. But at this moment in time, it was the writings of Patter, Oxford's Brasenose College, Premier Aesthetic and Don that appeared to most heavily influence Wilde's embryonic theories on art, creative genius, and homoerotic love in the Greek pederastic tradition. Patter's proselytizing of ill-disguised neo-pagan themes, the love of art for art's sake, the role of art in the social regeneration of society, the merits of our refined decadence as an impetus for creative genius, and the virtue of experience for its own sake, struck a particularly agreeable chord in Wilde's restless psyche and helped fill a growing spiritual void in Wilde's life. <clears throat> Wilde, as a budding aesthetic, was also impressed with the teachings of John Ruskin, 1819-1900, Slade Professor of Art at Axford, and one of the greatest art critics of the Victorian era. The highly esteemed Professor Ruskin publicly favored the pre-Raphaelite movement in art, as exemplified by the early works of Rossetti, Millet, and Holman Hunt. Philosophically, he stood almost diametrically opposite Pater in his opposition to the neoclassicism and sensual self-indulgence. Elman reported that Wilde sought out some spiritual direction from Ruskin and a friendship ensued, but it was not a last but it was not lasting one. The same might be said for Wilde's attraction to Freemasonry on important an important factor in religious Church of England, social and professional mobility in Victorian society. His father, and now Sir William Wilde, was a high-ranking member of the Shakespeare Lodge in Dublin, and Wilde loved masonry's, masonry's secret, secrecy, ritualism, and high fashion. On February 23, 1875, he officially joined the university's Apollo Lodge and quickly obtained the level of third degree. About 18 months later, Wilde went over to the Apollo Rose Croix chapter, the High Church of Freemasonry, and achieved the 18th degree. Initially, Wilde was an enthusiastic recruiter for the order until the novelty of it all began to wear thin. Throughout his remaining years at Oxford and in later life, Wilde maintained a peripheral interest in Freemasonry, but it never became the all-consuming passion it had once been. For Wilde, the source of his new passions lay in a different direction, the beginning of a secret life. It is impossible to point to a particular date or set of circumstances that marked the beginning of Wilde's flirtation with the homosexual underworld at Oxford, Oxbridge and London. But there are enough clues to indicate that it had begun sometime during the latter part of his first year at Oxford. We know that one of Wilde's visitors at Oxford during early summer of 1875 was the sculptor and through-paced queer, Lord Ronald Cower, known to be addicted to rough trade. On one such visit, Gower brought along a companion in crime, a rough sketch artist by the name of Frank Miles, who, like Gower, was a 
conscious and uninhibited homosexual and exhibitionist. By the summer of 1876, the two men's relationship with Wilde was on familiar enough ground for Miles to invite Wilde and Gower to his home at Bingham, Nottinghamshire. Miles' father was a recruiter without a clue, was a rector without a clue as to his son's homosexual behavior. Thereafter, Wilde saw Miles on a more regular basis, sharing holidays and school vacations. Interestingly, although his two best friends, Kitten and Bouncer, knew Frank or knew of Frank at Oxford, Wilde tended to keep his friendship with them separate from his growing relationship with Frank Miles. Wilde was beginning to compartmentalize his life. The death of Sir William Wilde, the death of his father on April 19, 1876, at the age of 61, following a long-term battle with asthma and gout, combined with the news that his family's finances, now bordered on the disastrous, weighed heavily on Wilde's mind as he left Dublin after the funeral to return to Oxford and his studies. The young man, consumed with grief and worry, entered into a period of deep religious introspection in which he contemplated his conversion to Catholicism, an action his family had consistently thwarted when he was alive. On occasion, Wilde went to hear his favorite preacher, Cardinal Henry Edward Manning, at the Church of St. Aloysius in St. Giles, the first Roman Catholic church to be built in Oxford since the Reformation. Prophetically, one of the Cardinal's most persistent themes of his preaching was Oxford's spiritual apathy and decay. Four, four months after his father's death, on July 19, 1876, Wilde again went to hear Carl Manning's, Carl Manning preach in London. In the summer of 1877, David Hunter Blair, one of Wilde's closest papist friends at Oxford, made his last stab at his schoolmate's conversion. The wealthy and zealous Blair, a recent convert himself who would eventually enter the Benedictine order, helped finance Wilde's trip to Rome, ostensibly from some gambling winning. Blair also arranged for a private audience for Wilde with Pope Pius IX. Wilde joined Blair and Ward, a Protestant in the Eternal City, on the way home from his trip to Greece with Mahaphi, who was as eager to keep Wilde Protestant and pagan as Blair was to make him Catholic. As for Wilde himself, after a momentary flicker of inspiration for things Roman, he returned to Oxford as elusive as ever regarding any serious or, and concrete spiritual commitment to either Anglicanism or Catholicism. There is no question that Wilde was always attracted to the outward signs of the Catholic faith, especially the beauty and pageantry of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the exquisite vestments, and the delicious smell of burning incense and bees wax candles. But he never gave his assent to Catholic doctrine or dogma, and while it is true that he often made references to Christ in his works, this was not the Christ of Scripture. God made man. In fact, Wilde often used Christian symbols and references to Christ in a manner that would, in effect, turn Christianity on its head. In Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, the author has the young Dorian contemplate the reasons why he had not converted to the Roman Church despite his sensual attraction for Roman rituals and his fascination with his mysterious mysteries, including the dimly lit confessionals where men revealed their darkest secrets. It was rumored of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic Communion, but he never fell into the era of resting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system, a mistaking for a house in which to live, an inn that is suitable for the sojourn of a night, or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail. Mysticism, with its marvelous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle and to Nominianism, 
that always seems to accompany it moved him for a season. Yet, as has been said of him before, no theory of life seemed to him to be of any importance compared with life itself. He felt keenly conspicuous of how barren all intellectual speculation is when separated from action and experiment. He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, had their spiritual mysteries to reveal. To the outside world, Wilde remained a minimalist Anglo-Irish Anglican Protestant, but by the start of his third year at Oxford, it was clear that his intellectual loyalties and emotional desires lay well outside the boundaries of Christianity altogether. Mahaffey had primed Wilde's latent pederastic urgings at Trinity and on their trips to Greece. Pater and his colleagues had fanned the coals of homoerotic desire at Oxford. Now, with the death of his father, whom he loved and respected, the last barrier to the release of Wilde's homoerotic inclinations and his transformation into the quintessential London dandy and later into England's foremost exponent of the virtues of Greek love came tumbling down. It is significant that Wilde's brother, Willie, who used to visit Oscar at Oxford, was among the first to suspect that Oscar's sexual inclinations might not be entirely normal following Wilde's return from Greece and Rome that fateful spring of 1877. Some of his closest Oxford friends began to remark on Oscar's new extreme asceticism, the ongoing euphemism for a sexual invert or homosexual, a personae that Wilde was just beginning to publicly exhibit, exploit with his new opulent and sometimes comic wardrobe and his exaggerated effete mannerisms and mincing gait. In his biography of Wilde, Croft Cook reported that Wilde Wilde's letters and manner of speech during the second half of his stay at Oxford contained more campy and self-mocking expressions that reflect a connection horror vague with the homosexual milieu. Happily for everyone, however, Oscar's last years at Oxford, as at Trinity College, had not been all play and no work. By the time he left Oxford for a literary career in London, in 1878, his reputation as an under, undisputed master of classical poetry and verse was made. In his senior year, he not only won the coveted Sir Roger Newdigate Prize for English verse for his poem, Ravenna, but he also earned a double first in great. The combined academic and artistic honors made him famous not only in academic circles, but in London society as well. The world lay at Oscar Wilde's feet. The only question that remained for the self-styled apostle of aestheticism was how to best exploit his classical training and literary talents, that and where and with whom to live in London, a new life in London. Upon going down from Oxford, the ambitious but financially constrained Wilde, now aged 25, took up rooms with his, with his close and equally ambitious friend, Frank Miles, aged 21, settling first at Salisbury Street near the river and later at Chelsea. It was after their sacred second move to Tite Street and that Wilde and Miles had a violent quarrel over Cannon and Mrs. Miles' objections to one of Wilde's recently published poems, probably Charmides, with its shocking and formidable psychosexual themes that included necrophilia. Apparently, Miles and her parents were totally oblivious to their own son's secret life as an exhibitionist and homosexual. The argument sent Wilde packing. After the death of his father, Miles' life quickly deteriorated. In 1887, he was confined to Brislington Asylum near Bristol, where he died four years later, reportedly by his own hand. The fates appeared to have been kinder to Wilde, at least for a while. In the spring of 1891, the Gilbert and Sullivan Operetta Patients opened at London's Opera Comique to rave reviews. Based upon an earlier satirical piece by William Gilbert titled 
the royal rival curate, about two meek asexual priests, Roman Catholic patients represented a frontal assault on the pre-Raphaelite and ascetic movements and a Protestant evangelical backhanded swipe at the Roman church that appeared to be attracting more than a few ascetic converts. The lead characters and patients are the uh, outrageous ascete Reginald Bunthorpe and the more sensuous and fleshly ascete Archibald Grossavener. Their manner and deportment is a feat. Their dress outrageously flamboyant and their favorite flower, the gilded lily, <clears throat> is replaced, a replacement for the green carnation of the sodomite. Since Gilbert wrote the lyrics for Patience while Oscar was still at Oxford, Wilde was not the model for either Bunthorpe or Grossavener. Nevertheless, while a born self-promoter quickly saw the benefits of developing his public image along the lines of these several-yard characters. In his memoirs of his father, Ibian Holland Wilde corrects the story that it was Richard Doyle Cart, the producer of all the Gilbert and Sullivan operators, who invented Wilde, England's leading exponent of aestheticism to deliver a series of lectures in America's major cities. Actually, the invitation came from Cart's business manager, Colonel F.W. Morse. Wilde needed the money, and he also wanted to attend to the production details of his play, Vera, or the Nihilus, that he wrote in 1890. He wrote in 1880. On December 24, 1881, Wilde embarked for America and began his first whirlwind tour that took him from New York to California, 140 lectures in 70 towns in 260 days. Most Americans couldn't have been less interested in the English fop, but high society, especially the female element, took him to their bosom. While Oscar loved to mingle with the upper crust and attended a number of private salon engagements in New York and California, that were especially arranged for him. Oscar also had the opportunity to meet with a number of prominent American literary figures, including the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Walt Whitman. His personal tours took him to a Masonic temple and to Cherry Grove on Fire Island, the future site of one of New York's most notorious homosexual vacation enclaves. By the time he returned home to England after his successful American tour, Wilde was a celebrity. For the next two months, he was a hot item in London's fashionable literary circles. When his popularity waned, he retired to the Hotel Voltaire in Paris to finish off his next play, a rather poor work, The Duchess of Padua, that was written for but rejected by the American actress Mary Anderson. Then, having spent the remainder of the twenty, the remainder of the twelve hundred pounds he earned on his American tour, he sailed back for a second tour and the unsuccessful premiere of Vera at the Union Square Theater in New York on August twentieth, eighteen eighty-three. Wild as a husband and father, when Wild met his future wife Constance Lloyd in May of eighteen eighty-one in London, he had not as yet fully committed himself to the more vulgar physical expressions of Greek love. At age 27, he appeared more than willing to give marriage and parenthood a try. Besides, his, he had spent himself dry and was mortgaged to the hilt. Croft Cook put the matter rather tartly, but in hindsight perhaps quite accurately. She, Constance, had a sufficient income, and they set up a home in Tight Street. Constance Wilde was Irish-born, the daughter of the prominent London barrister Horace Lloyd. She was 23 years old when she met Oscar and his mother and soon became a regular at Mrs. Wilde's soirees. The strong-willed Francesca Wilde, the dominant force in her son's life, apparently did not 
view Constance as a serious competitor for Oscar's affections. Nevertheless, by all accounts, the new Mrs. Wilde was not only beautiful, but charming, cultured, intelligent, multilingual, with a hidden strength of character that surfaced later in her marriage. Although she could not have been aware of her husband's reputation as an aesthetic and dandy, we cannot assume that she she thought of her husband as a potential or active sodomite, since these Victorian terms were not necessarily synonymous. Despite parental objections on the bride's side, the couple was married on May 29, 1884, at St. James Church, Paddington, in a high aesthetic mode, and spent their honeymoon in Paris at the Hotel Wagram. Oscar's flattering attention and passionate love letters during their courtship and the arrival of two sons, Cyril and Vivian, Vivian, within 18 months of marriage, must have quelled any early doubts she might have entertained about the wisdom of their marital union. And it certainly was more than sufficient to squelch those long-standing dark rumors that had followed Wilde down from Oxford. In his memoirs, Son of Oscar Wilde, Vivian Holland Wilde, Oscar's younger son, presented a touching portrait of Oscar Wilde as the adoring and adored father during the happy years. The games in the park and nursery, his father's famous guests, frolicking at the seashore, the endless hours of storytelling, and the mending of precious broken toys. After the fatal trials, when the bailiff came to sell the contents of the house, Vivian recalled that lot number 237, a large quantity of toys, realized 20 shillings. Professionally speaking, Wilde continued to work hard as a playwright while accepting more mundane writing assignments as a book reviewer for the Mall Gazette, a drama critic for a dramatic review, and an editor 1887-1889 for the Ladies' World, later renamed Woman's World magazine. With the publication of The Happy Prince and Other Tales in the spring of 1888, Wilde entered an unprecedented period of sparkling creativity that enhanced his reputation as a literary artist as well as his pocketbook. Wilde was now the center of three adoring constellations, his wife and young sons, an intimate circle of influential and wealthy friends and associates, and a growing worldwide audience of adoring fans and admirers. All in all, they appeared sufficient to keep Wilde content for a time. Unfortunately for all concerned, it was a rather short time. The Marillier infatuation and Ross affair. There are at least two different stories as to what prompted Wilde to begin or restart his homosexual affairs just two years into his marriage. The least believable version is that Wilde, that that proffered by Wilde's friend and biographer Robert Sherrard, who claimed that the return of syphilis forced Oscar to abandon normal marital relations and drove him to homosexuality. The more probable and prosaic reason was that Wilde had simply become bored with married life. He still loved being a father, but he now longed to to taste more exciting and forbidden sexual fruit. We know that Wilde, the ultimate connoisseur of beauty, was very upset that Constance's pregnancies had marred her lovely face and lithe figure, and that he had complained to his friends that she had become heavy, shapeless, and deformed, and that he was so disgusted that he had to force himself to touch and kiss her. With regard to his own bloated facial features and middle-aged spread, he ventured no comment. There is also the simple element of class, chance, and opportunity. His firstborn son, Cyril, was just five months old when Mary Marillier re-entered, when Harry Marillier re-entered Wilde's life. 
Oscar had first met Harry when the blue coat boy was only 15 and Wilde had just left Oxford to live with Frank Miles at Salisbury Street. The exceedingly handsome young man was now 20 years old and an undergraduate student at Cambridge. Wilde invited the young man to meet him in London, and Harry accepted the invitation. A correspondence began between the two that reflected a desire for a greater intimacy in, on Wilde's part, but the infatuation came to nothing, possibly through parental interference by Morellier's father, and their letters quit by February of 1886. Wilde's unrequited love for Harry Morellier, however, did result in one redeeming feature. It primed him for what is alleged to have been his first homosexual experience with a lad named Robert Ross, a 17-year-old Canadian who had been brought up in London and was just about to enter King's College, Cambridge. About a year later, school authorities abruptly told the undergraduate to leave Cambridge, an incident probably connected to his homosexual activities. Robbie went on to become a journalist and art critic, but he made his reputation as Arts Oscar Wilde's literary executor. Literary historian Rupert Croft Cook rejected the idea of little Robbie's seduction of the 32-year-old Wilde, and I tend to agree with him. From what we know of Wilde's last years at Oxford, particularly his obsession with sexually transgressive literary themes and his long-term friendship with the homosexuals Frank Miles and Lord Gower, it appears that Oscar would not have been a stranger to London's homosexual underworld with his ready access to young rent boys upon whom he could make slake his pederastic appetites. In addition, as Croft Cook so astutely painted, pointed out, Wilde's reputation as an aesthetic would not have grown were it not aided by the gossip of the queers, one of publicity's most powerful mouthpieces then and today. On the other hand, if one views Ross's seduction of the older Wilde solely within the context of an ideal quasi-intellectual Hellenistic framework with Wilde acting the respected Erastes and the young, dark-haired, handsome Ross, his beloved Eromanos, then indeed Ross may be the first boy that Oscar ever had. In his later days, Ross is said to have regretted his early affair with Wilde, but he was not to blame. Wilde was ripe, might even say overripe, for a pederastic relationship with Hellenistic overtones. He had longed and desired to partake of the forbidden love that promised to free him from the shackles of traditional morality, liberate his senses, and flood his being with a fresh wave of intellectual and creative genius. Ross had issued the invitation, dare Wilde refuse. But Wilde had no sooner consummated his relationship with little Robbie than their physical ardor began to cool, although it was never cut off altogether. This was a pattern that Wilde would establish with most of his sexual alliances that involved young men from upper or middle class families. Wilde was already looking forward to his next conquest. Nevertheless, as is not uncommon with many homosexual affairs, the genuine friendship that developed between Wilde and Ross would last a lifetime. Oscar Wilde's Dorian. It was less than a year later, after Ross had entered King's College, Cambridge, that Wilde found his next sexual partner in the person of John Gray, a working-class youth and aspiring poet who Wilde picked up in a bar one evening in 1889. The handsome Gray, who spoke with a lively Cockney accent before he remade himself, was 23 years old, and he held a daytime job at the Foreign Office. It was later said that he provided the model for Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, although there were significant differences between this Gray and the fictitious Dorian Gray. With Wilde immediately began to parade his latest favorite about town, as a middle-aged, as middle-aged queens like to do. 
for his part, the obviously ambitious Gray, was content to bask in his master's spotlight, and he soon became a regular member of Oscar, Oscar's literary and homosexual circles. Wilde's affair with Gray was to last more than two years, although it was taken for granted by both men that the relationship was not exclusive, as Wilde had developed as Wilde had developed a distinct preference for local lower class renters, his honey sweet boys, and Gray was always on the lookout for potential sugar daddies. Later, when Wilde met his true love, Lord Alfred Douglas, he attempted to soften the blow of separation with Gray by agreeing to pay for the printing of Silver Points, a collection of poetry that included 13 original works by Gray. This proved unnecessary. The tab for Silver Points was eventually picked up by the wealthy Jewish Parisian socialite Mark Andre Rafalovich, who entered Gray's life just when the despondent young man was contemplating suicide. Gray's new suitor had laid himself and his vast fortune at the young man's feet. Gray made a remarkably quick recovery. However, in time, what began as a homosexual liaison was suddenly transformed into a deep and abiding taste friendship by an extraordinary turn of events. In 1896, following a dramatic religious experience, Rafalovich converted from Judaism to Catholicism. Together with Gray, who had come into the Roman Church six years earlier, the two men embarked upon a spiritual journey that brought Gray to Scots College in Rome in October 1898 to study for the Catholic priesthood. Later, Rafalovich became a Dominican Third Order tertiary and a daily communicant at Canon Gray's new church that was built with hands provided by Rafalovich. After his ordination on December 21, 1901, Father Gray, at his insistence, at the insistence of Pope Leo XIII, settled outside of England in Edinburgh, Scotland, accompanied by his gentleman companion. The two men went on to forge a lasting fraternal bond that spanned more than three decades until Rafalovich's death in February 18, in February 1934. Canon Gray followed his faithful friend to the grave and just four months later. Their lives had been transformed by God's grace. Agape had conquered Eros. Wilde was not as fortunate. He was about to meet the love of his life, Lord Alfred Douglas and his Waterloo. And I don't have time now for the catechism because I'm at 52 minutes already, so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.